Welcome to the Social Policy Connections audio podcast. If you would like to attend one of our events, please refer to our website www.socialpolicyconnections.org.au Please feel free to subscribe to our podcasts via iTunes or via an RSS feed located on our website's homepage, as we will be publishing podcasts regularly free of charge. The following lecture was presented on the 16th of October 2008 at Social Policy Connection's first event in the new study centre at Yarra Theological Union. Our guest speaker was the Reverend Joel Edwards, incoming director of MICA Challenge International. MICA Challenge International is an international campaign by churches to mobilise public support for lifting millions out of hunger and acute poverty. The Reverend Edwards, who is also a member of the UK Equality and Human Rights Commission and Tony Blair's Faith Foundation, was born in Jamaica and lived in England from the age of eight. From 1997 till recently, he headed the World Evangelical Alliance. Reverend Edwards had earlier talked with Prime Minister Kevin Rudd about how Australia could use its influence to expand support for the Millennium Development Goals. And now we hear from the Reverend Joel Edwards on the topic, the MICA Challenge and the UN Millennium Development Goals, what has been achieved and what more can we do? Thank you very much indeed, and uh, good afternoon everyone. Um, I'm really grateful for the opportunity uh, to be here and to get a chance to spend some time uh, uh, with you. Uh, I've had the opportunity and the privilege of getting up and shouting at people from behind microphones for about 25 years, maybe, on and off. Uh, But it's still always uh, a real sense of humility when people travel from wherever to come and spend time to hear your thoughts such as they are. Um, I hope it will prove um, uh, a worthwhile time together, uh, because what I want to try and do, if I may, is to spend about 20 minutes uh, sort of talking at you, and I hope we will have a, maybe a half an hour or so in which we can explore the unsaid things. That's done for a, a couple of reasons. Uh, firstly, uh, is that um, despite that uh, biography, uh, I see myself so much as uh, a, a generalist. I'm really um, not a great deal more than a pastor on the loose, really. That's what I am. And I, I often say to people, I was the general director of the Evangelical Alliance for 11 and a half years, and I was the general director because they couldn't find a specific one. Uh, I'm, I'm a kind of a specialist in generalizations to find myself um, doing some rather interesting things. So I'm going to talk briefly so that we have an opportunity to capture uh, the world's diversity of knowledge, of information, which is also around uh, this room. I'm also going to try and talk briefly, because this is 10 past 3 in a very warm afternoon. And one of the tricks I've learned is that you've got to talk for too long if that's the kind of condition. So let me tell you what I'm going to try and do in my 20 minutes. I'm going to try very courageously to do a combination of autobiography to kind of fill in some of the bits you didn't hear from the CV which has a bearing on my worldview, and therefore why I find myself doing what I'm doing. And then I'll spend the next 
the other 10 minutes or thereabouts, trying to come more specifically around some of the issues which Minor Challenge has been set up to respond to probably within that, just to maybe tease out some headlines uh, on some of the current issues which may therefore give us an opening to explore in a little more detail. Here's a brief passage from God's Word. Uh, it's uh, from the book of Ephesians chapter 1 and the last uh, three verses or so. He demonstrated his power in the Messiah by raising him from the dead and seating him at, the, at his right hand in the heavens, far above every ruler and authority, power and dominion, and every title given, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put everything under his feet and appointed him as the head over everything for the church. It's a very high and exalted ecclesiology in the book of Ephesians, as you know, which is his body, the fullness of the one, as God, who fills all things in every way. It's a pretty comprehensive uh, text. It's a big idea about a very big God and a very big mission. And I suppose my own um, journey, which took me from Kingston, Jamaica, at the age of eight, to standing behind this podium this afternoon, um, is something about trying to explore and discover the immensity of this passage we have just read, and then to contextualize that within uh, some of the specific things I found myself involved with. So that when I was uh, a kid, and growing up in the relative piety of my Pentecostal background, it was very um, evident and absolutely uh, abs uh, given truth that if you were a Christian, you did not get yourself involved with certain things. You didn't do uh, politics. Um, you, you, you didn't do uh, law. Uh, you stayed away from anything which looked as though it might contaminate you by involvement with the world. So it was a very exclusive kind of existence. And a part of the reason for that was because I think we felt fairly confident that we had a pretty exclusive God. And you will know that there is a continuity between our view of God and therefore of the church and therefore of the mission of the church. And this is precisely what I think is hidden behind those three verses we had in the opening silence of Ephesians uh, uh, chapter 1 and 2. So that this God I knew quite well was very pro-Pentecostal. Actually, he didn't trust anybody else. He was pretty certain, this God, that if you were going to be a real Christian, not only were you going to be removed from most other species of Christian existence, but actually, you needed to be Pentecostal. In fact, you needed to be black Pentecostal. Um, we didn't trust the Baptists. We weren't sure about Methodists. We couldn't work out are they Anglicans or not. Uh, and even white Pentecostals were suspect because they didn't preach for as long as we did. <laughs> they didn't sweat when they preached. And so we weren't quite sure about them either. Anglicans were in another sphere, a hemisphere. And Catholics were in a stratosphere, <laughs> somewhere beyond the reach of rockets. Um, and this was the God who had wired us up to take over the world all by ourselves, uh, with a little help from him. 
And then I went to this place called London Bible College, where that whole thing got blown away for me. And I suddenly ran into a God who did have a lot to do with everybody else, with Methodists and Baptists and women who wore trousers to the church. It was quite, a, it was quite an amazing thing. It was apparent that you could actually wear jewelry and still be a Christian. So it's quite shocking. Um, and so I discovered that God had, had more friends than I thought he was allowed to keep. In fact, I, I discovered his family was bigger than I thought it was. And so suddenly my ecumenical sensitivities began to expand. So that not only did God get bigger, but his family got bigger. And as God got bigger and the family got bigger, so it seemed that the mission of this God got bigger. When I left Bible college, um, many people assumed that I would do the obvious thing and become church leader. It seemed the obvious thing, but it wasn't so obvious to God. He certainly wasn't where he was going. He took me into the probation service for some 14 and a half years. It did two things for me, working in the criminal justice system and dealing um, with that constituents. One, it, it, it was great preparation for doing church leadership years later, but that's supposed to be funny, but it's okay. And, um, and more importantly, it opened my eyes to how big the mission was. How could you possibly preach on Sunday about a God of love and mercy without mentioning the woman you left in a cell in Holloway Prison or the young addict? And how could you be concerned about issues of individual piety and holiness without thinking about the impact of righteousness and justice for people who were on the receiving end of injustice? And how could you think about injustice within the context of the black community who are now experiencing police brutality, uh, our children underperforming in the educational system, our people overrepresented in psychiatric wards and massively overrepresented in the criminal justice system. How do you then uh, see this mission of the church as anything other than a desire of God to fill everything in every way, to have a complete sense of connectivity with the world in which we were ministering and worshiping? So my journey out of the probation service into 20 years in the evangelical uh, leadership of the United Kingdom got me increasingly to understand that there were dimensions to God which were far bigger than I had been led to believe, that the family of God was far bigger than I had been led to believe, and the mission of God was far bigger than I was led to believe. The funny thing about that, of course, is that the wider you go, the bigger God gets, the more vulnerable you get. The bigger God gets, the smaller you become. The bigger the church gets, the more you perceive your own responsibility and your own role within the church, within a particular framework. And the sense of proportionality between who you are as a Pentecostal, Baptist, Catholic, Anglican, or whatever, is measured now against the size of the body. And the bigger the mission becomes, the bigger the family has to be, because you know that no one section of the family can deal with the entirety of the mission. It was a very defining moment for me on one occasion when I was part of an ecumenical group who commissioned a report for the health of London. I think that's what it was 
was called, somewhere back in the um, uh, mid-90s. And uh, uh, it was the late 90s. And at that point, um, Cardinal Basil Hume, the um, uh, leader of the Roman Catholic Church in the UK, I remember, was part of our ecumenical um, meeting. Having commissioned this report, we uh, came to the press launch of this wonderful document, which we thought had a lot to offer the capital on London. And it was interesting because I was a co-signature along with all the other Christian leaders from this ecumenical gathering. But I remember um, when it came to the photo shoot, we all lined up, we were required to line up for, for the snap. And I thought to myself, I am an evangelical Christian. I am the leader of the Evangelical Alliance of the United Kingdom. If I'm seen in the same photo shoot as the Cardinal, I'm dead meat. <laughs> what can I possibly do? I've got to keep my evangelical credentials intact. <laughs> I'm making some incredible, pathetic excuse about having to go back to the office to do something or other. And I was on the, I was on the top of a number three bus going back to Kensington. And I remember thinking, what kind of an evangelicalism is this? What kind of a Christian faith is this? That you cannot be seen to be flanking men and women of other expressions of Christianity for the common good. How can you not stand with a very godly man? You ever knew Cardinal Hume, you always felt as if you stood next to him. You always felt as if you might just be waking him from prayer or something, disturbing his prayer life. You always just felt that kind of godly sense of him. And I thought, how can you distance yourself from a person like this? In the interest of the common good, you have to recognize that you are a part of a big family, family with whom you have one or two historic conversations, nonetheless. And you know, you can keep conversations going for the better part of four or five hundred years, like the good theologians and church leaders. But nonetheless, you are a part of a bigger family. Now, I'm saying all of that because the reason which brings us to this place this afternoon, I think, requires, first of all, a big God. If we don't have a sense of a big God, then we're always constrained in our ability to meet the big issues. And if we don't have a sense of a big family, we're always curtailed in our ability to understand this big God and his methodology and his networking potential to respond to the big mission. And it is in the context of the big mission that I am so glad that in the past 30 years, accelerating the last 15, Christians have become so committed to the mission of God. And that mission of God has always been a bias to the poor, as David Shepherd wrote many years ago. That mission of God has always been a bias to those who are vulnerable. That mission to the poor has always been a particular concern for those who are oppressed. And one of the great calling cards of the church has always been its commitment to the oppressed, to those who have been marginalized. Our Catholic brothers and sisters have been far more consistent and persistent in following that vision of being close to the heart of God in relation to the poor and the marginalized. 
I think other parts of the Christian community, particularly the evangelical world, have caught up with that vision, perhaps over the last 30 years. The statements which came out of the Lausanne report in the mid-70s helped us to begin to reorientate ourselves as the body of Jesus Christ in relation to the poor. And everything from tactical responses to poverty to policy responses to policy has therefore come out of our realignment with God's mission for the poor. I'm very pleased that by the time we reach the late 80s, 90s, mid-90s, the Christian church globally has begun a reawakening in terms of the breadth of our kingdom mission. My first introduction to this was being caught up in the mission called Jubilee 2000. I remember being a part of NGOs sat in a room with Gordon Brown and Claire Short on a quarterly basis to talk about the Jubilee 2000 campaign, the campaign to uh, alleviate the debt of 43 highly indebted countries. Drop the debt. Jubilee was a theological call. Few people, even within uh, uh, civil society, understood that. Anne Pettifor, who led Jubilee 2000, understood that Jubilee was a theological imperative for the poor. The then treasurer of the United Kingdom, Gordon Brown, understood that this was a theological imperative with policy implications on behalf of the poor. And when some of us reached the back end of the year 2000 and recognized that the real politic meant that it was unlikely that within 24 hours we would see the cancellation of unpaid debts by poor countries. We then began to ask the question, if Christians have been so embroiled in lobbying and agitating for the poor in Jubilee 2000, what is it that God might be calling us to do in relation to the poor? What do we do with this energy? What do we do with this reawakening? And it was around about the same time as you know that the nations of the world gathered to make a contract and a covenant for support. The Millennium Declaration, which holds up some very high aspirations for our combined humanity. The Millennium Development Goals, which said, we will anchor the Millennium Declaration in eight promises, which is a contract we have with the poor, by which, by the year 2015, we will reduce extreme poverty by 50% through these eight discrete promises. And when those promises were made, the truth of the matter is that many people were rather sceptical, rather cynical. How long is a piece of string? And each of these eight promises has the potential of being as long as you, know, you want it to be, as vague, some people would have said, as you needed it to be. But some of us felt, no, if for the first time governments have actually contracted to do this, what should a Christian response be? Should we turn our backs? Should we pray for it, against it? Uh, for it, if you're kind of left of center as a Christian? Um, against it, if you're right of center and you feel like the United Nations is demonic? What do we do? Should we turn up to government and consistently tell them how bad they are if they fail? Or should we be prophetic in our response? The Micah challenge is called that because it was the child of two parent bodies. Because at the same time, uh, Christians from around the world were collaborating in how they worked as Christian NGOs on issues of poverty and 
like a network, was birthed at the dawn of this millennium. At the same time, the World Evangelical Alliance, a coalition, if you like, a family of some 127 countries, 42, 420 million people around the world, was also gathering as a body of evangelical Christians increasingly committed to ensure that our faith counted on behalf of those who are marginalized, on behalf of the poor. These two bodies, the Micro Network and the World Evangelical Alliance, came together and gave birth to Micro Challenge. Here's what Micro Challenge is. Micro Challenge is therefore a global Christian response to the Millennium Development Goals, by which we aim to firstly deepen our commitment to the poor, and secondly, to advocate for and with the poor, holding governments to account. We were amazed when in October 2004, on a shoestring of a budget, we were able to launch Michael Challenge at the United Nations. Four years later, Michael Challenge is now present in 40 different nations of the world. Some of them are strong, small amount. Most of them have incredible potential. But here's what we want to do with my challenge. First of all, we want to work to ask some very profound questions of ourselves. What does it mean to deepen our commitment to the poor? What does it mean to begin to realign the Christian church so that it lines itself up with God's heart, with God's passion for the poor? What does it mean to understand together the the challenge of Isaiah, if you pour out your soul to the poor, then your light will shine forth. What does it mean to have a church which resonates with Paul's declaration in Galatians chapter 2? Ah, I met with the apostles in Jerusalem, they gave me the right hand of fellowship. They said they would lay no further burden on me except one thing, that I remember the poor. Ah, I was going to do that anyway, said Paul. What does it mean for a church? So prioritize the poor in our polity, in our budget, in our attitudes, even in our culture, in such a way that our response to the poor, our response to the disadvantaged, our response to the marginalized, becomes something more than an equal concern for who uh, does the flower arrangements, or who is or is not on the choir. How do you prioritize God's passion so that we signally deepen our commitment to the poor, so that there is integrity in our lobby. And Micah's second aim is to be a prophetic voice to politicians. I was really, really privileged in Canberra this week with Micah Challenge's Voices for Justice here in Australia. Just a fantastic week. I sat with a number of uh, young uh, people as we lobbied uh, a member of parliament uh, on the hill. What was great about sitting with these four youngsters is they sort of pulled out their stats, um, sat before the Member of Parliament and said, well now, we are coming to you, sir, because we're so grateful for your government, for all that you have done uh, to put the MDGs high on the agenda, for the fact that you have significantly ratcheted up your commitment, or wherever it was, three point something, was it, to uh, a five percent commitment by 2020. That's really great, but actually, we're really wanting to tell you that we still think it should be 0.7%, not 0.5% of our GNI. That's what we're aiming for. We think 
that whilst we're doing a great job and there's some great stories to be told about what we're doing as a nation and the world. So we think that really we do need to consider that by 2015 we are giving one billion in aid because that is our contribution to a world in need. And that billion in aid will make a substantial difference to lowering the, aid, the number of maternity deaths will actually do a tremendous amount to lower infant mortality, both here in the South Pacific, but also in other parts of the world. So thank you for what you're doing, but we really want to encourage you to press on. Now let me tell you why that's so fascinating to me. It's because two days before, three days before, these same youngsters were in church, in worship, listening to preaching, worshiping God. And just a couple of days later, these worshipers, were translating their commitment to God in the context of policy asks. A politician they were talking to me that they were first timers. It was gentle, it was nurturing. Because actually what was happening was a lot more than Mike a challenge, putting some kids in front of a member of parliament. What was happening was Mike a challenge and encouraging Christians to behave like Christian citizens. That's precisely a part of our Christian obligation to be more than pietists behind closed doors, but to be active Christian citizens in the public square. That was the transaction taking place before my very eyes. What was happening was Michael challenging, nurturing the democratic process through young people who will hopefully take their Christian commitment, holistic, integrated response to the world from worship to policy application. And I think what we have, therefore, as we look into the future and peak in the years ahead, is to recognize that there are some very serious challenges. We had the opportunity of talking to all kinds of interesting individuals over the last couple of days as we worked on the hill, as it were. And we know that there are very difficult and pressing problems and challenges facing us as a result of the global economic crunch. Here is a bigger challenge, perhaps. How do we ensure that as a community of faith, we sustain our prophetic role in ensuring that the moral imperative of caring for the vulnerable, of being a part of a global humanity, doesn't get diverted or dissipated by economic realities which are domestic. How do we ensure that our global humanity continues to eclipse our domestic humanity so that the church plays a vibrant prophetic role in saying to a prime minister, in saying to a treasurer, yeah, we've got some real challenges here, we've done well, but we still think that the Lord has told us what to do. It is still to do justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly with God. And that walk of humility with God is always going to be best understood, perhaps, as we walk humbly with God, with the poor. 2015 is a policy deadline. It's a clear objective. But even beyond that, we think that what God calls us to is that constant, timeless commitment to deepen our response to the poor. But I think I'll stop there. It may be that, but it's not that important to us. I'd be more than happy to let somebody else answer. <laughs>